Probably the most prolific and unpopular belief held by Christians today is the sanctity of traditional heterosexual marriage. Oftentimes, Christians are labeled hateful, intolerant, bigoted, and homophobic for opposing the LGBTQ agenda. So today, we're going to finish our discussion on this highly controversial topic. What do science and statistics reveal about homosexuality? What exactly are Christians asking of people who experience same-sex attraction? What are the political ramifications of the two competing views in our culture? And how can people on both sides of the debate discuss this topic in a more civil manner? All this and more in today's episode. Bailey. Hey, I'm Michael. And I'm David. And welcome back to the Facing the Gates podcast. Last episode, we talked about uh, basically covering the biblical view of uh, sexual morality and what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And today, having had that as the premise for this conversation, we're going to go into the natural questions that stem in our culture from the belief uh, that Christians pose that uh, homosexuality is wrong. So to start out, we're going to go into a subject of much debate. Are people born gay? This This is very debatable. So before I go into my diatribe of, of a little bit of homework that I've done on this issue, what do you guys think? Well, first, I think it'd be good for us to get a baseline of what gay is. Is it an attraction? Or where does that line get drawn in this discussion? Kind of. Okay. Um, that's fair enough. I would probably define it as uh, a same-sex sexual orientation to where... Uh, you know, I mean, I guess technically you could say, you could ask the question equally of, are people born bisexual? Um, but I would say to the point where they are, uh, they believe their sexual orientation to be gay. So they are attracted to the same sex. Okay. The only thing that I can really, because obviously I can't go into other people's heads, I don't know. I was I'm the way I am with my natural biases. Specifically in a sexual way. Probably should preface that also. Because you can say, damn, that boy cute. But you you don't mean it in a gay way. I know it sounds really gay, but... But That's just (laughs) fragile men who can't appreciate (laughs) the beauty of humankind. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. But uh, I would say people can be born with attractions to a lot of things. It's whether or not... It's kind of the nature versus nurture debate. Is it like, is it is it innate to you or is it something that you learn? Well, I believe sexuality <laughs> in a whole is 
obviously innate to humankind because that is how we reproduce. And Mm -hmm. so therefore the attraction can be, in my eyes, naturally occurring. Kind of with what you said last episode, it's not the attraction, it's more of the action. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably going to go more into that, uh, kind of explaining like, you know, as I alluded to, what are Christians asking people who are gay to do? I'm going to go more into that later, but um, cool. Okay, what about you, David? Yeah, um, pretty much the same thing, though, since it is something kind of human psychology and everything like that, the answer is possibly somewhere in between where you are kind of, you're born with this attraction, but it can wax and wane fully based on situations, body chemistry, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or trauma. It's also Tra- one of the yeah. great. So both of you are saying like you can be born with some level of predisposition towards being gay. Yeah. Just, whether just whether like, or not it's 100% that yeah. that makes you gay is, is yeah, a different uh, question. Well, essentially, but, yeah. not necessarily gay, but attraction and non-heteronormative relationships. Yeah. Kind of in the same vein where I'm, I was born with a naturally, uh, can you say that word again? That phrase you said? Heteronormative? No, not, not, uh, disposition. A natural disposition to addiction due to my chemistry, psychological, all that stuff. I have a natural disposition to addictive tendencies. Right. More so than the normal man, as both of you guys know, which I've been very open about. Gotcha. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I, I will go ahead and open by saying there is certainly this uh, propagandistic sector of the LGBTQ community that wants to push being gay as a biological reality, i.e. born gay. The reason they are interested in this is because if people are born gay, then it is a naturally occurring thing and should therefore be considered morally acceptable. More on that later. Um, so undoubtedly these activist types have done experiments into this very thing, but we have to be aware that some of them and many of them care more about their agenda than, and narrative than they do science. So I have two examples here. Um, a study done by a Harvard neurobiologist named Simon LeVay in the nineties claimed that gay men have smaller hypothalamuses than straight men which may be a biological connection to homosexual orientation. However, there was a massive kickback from the scientific community because the size difference was so small that no one could tell the difference. The results also couldn't be repeated. Some straight men have smaller hypothalases than gay men, for example, so the conclusion could not be verified. Now, for reference, LeVay got into the field because he was already convinced that being gay was biological, and he became motivated after his partner died of AIDS. Uh, after doing this study that received massive acclaim to the, from the media, uh, but massive critical uh, criticism from the actual scientific community, LeVay ended up quitting his career in science and became a gay activist. Um, also in the 90s, <clears throat> Harvard geneticist Dean Hamer claimed that there was, quote, a statistical confidence level of 99% that at least one subtype of male sexual orientation is genetically based, end quote. 
He believed that there was a genetic difference in the chromosome XQ28 of gay people. His study also received kickback from the scientific community because he didn't have a control group and because his results could not be replicated. Now, additionally, you might expect identical twins to both be gay if being gay is an immutable genetic aspect of someone because both twins share an identical set of genes. This is rarely the case, though. Michael Bailey found that homosexuality occurred in both twins only one in nine times, and he used a registry of 25,000 twins. So... The, the conclusions can be made that, at this point, biology plays little confirmed role in someone's sexual orientation. I personally believe what is more than likely the case is children develop their sexual preference at a young age through interaction with their environment. In other words, it's more of a matter of nurture rather than nature. There are often telltale signs of a child developing into a homosexual orientation, such as <clears throat> making friends, making more friends with the opposite sex, growing up without a father, exposure to porn at an early age, dealing with sexual abuse at the home, etc. Of course, this is a bit of a stereotype and isn't always the case, but it is something of a loose trend. And just one last thing on this, um, with regard to Christian teaching, whether it's nature or nurture, is frankly irrelevant. We're all born with certain dispositions towards certain types of sin. So, in a sense, people who have a disposition towards homosexuality aren't really all that special, because if it weren't that, it would be something else. So, some people have a disposition towards lust. Others are more inclined to be dishonest. Just, becomes, just because it comes naturally doesn't mean it is good. We are all called to carry our cross and turn from our sinful inclinations. And I'll turn it over to you guys. Yeah, I mean, and another thing that's been brought up before is hormonal differences. But then when you look at it from a non-biased standpoint, they hold little balance to that because there are straight men who have very low testosterone, higher estrogen usually due to health issues and then there are very high T gay like you know like the bodybuilder type gay guy <laughs> uh -huh. super high T which is the male dominant uh, hormone which is responsible for a lot some developments so it's it's one of those things where I don't think enough sound studies have been done again like with the no control group, not being able to be replicated. It's one of those things where if we did want to be able to, without a shadow of a doubt, say it, there would need to be a ton more non-biased research done. But with ethics in mind, that is extremely hard to do. And most people on either side want to just push an agenda instead of look for the scientific answer. But mm -hmm. also, that doesn't take take credence away from what you stated about the Christian ethos because all men are therefore born with sin because we are all sinners due to uh, back to the garden <clears throat> and then we all have natural dispositions like I stated mine is what addictive things whether it's mm -hmm. caffeine, nicotine, you name it 
I'm more inclined to follow those routes of the drunkard. So yeah, it's it's a very touchy. One, yeah, one topic. thing I would nuance about what you said. It's not that you're necessarily wrong, but I think when you're talking about people being born with sin, I would nuance that and say that we are born inclined to sin, not that we are born inherently with sin, because that gets into this idea of original sin. And uh, I don't believe that we're born guilty of Adam's sin. I think that was a misunderstanding done by Augustine and spread by a lot of people in the West. That's obviously my theological uh, kind of objection to that. But yeah, I mean, the the general gist of what you're saying in that part is true that like we are all we all have our own sinful inclinations and we have to doesn't matter if it's natural or not you know people are born with with chemical dispositions towards alcoholism doesn't mean that being an alcoholic is therefore okay for them yeah yeah and And doesn't mean that someone will be an alcoholic yeah right and and to state everybody that's not that's not necessarily based on my beliefs that's based on what has what is in the bible right because i mean just because you're born to you're born inclined in biblical terms doesn't mean it's right and i can look at that uh is it's is it objectively yeah i can look at that objectively from an outside stance and go okay this is how this has been relayed to me through people more knowledgeable in the theological sense than myself about these issues. Which I think is an important thing to do when having these discussions. Ask questions and do research. Yeah. David, you have thoughts? Yeah. Thoughts. I mean, the... The... the one thing to remember is, especially with anything scientifical, like we barely understand the brain. And oh, yeah. also, we like the nurture versus nature on both sides. You can have the same exact, almost the same exact person, but they could go two different routes for what, nah, what we would see as no apparent reason. Maybe further on, we can have more knowledge on the brain. But it's like with, say, take depression. Same people would have serotonin problems, take the same medicine, and it reacts violently different. Yeah. Yeah, so this this is also kind of getting at kind of our naturalistic bias when it comes to talking about this issue. Because we, mm-hmm. when we, we talk about this, we automatically go to nature versus nurture. Is it, is it how you're born or is it your environment? And that kind of automatically excludes the supernatural realm because yeah. I, I I do believe that to some level uh, there is spiritual influence in our lives and sometimes we might pathologize that and write it off as just some kind of mental disorder or whatever it may be in a psychological perspective. But like you said, we barely even understand the brain. These, um, these yeah, I mean- mental disorders are never 
I'm not saying that being gay is a mental disorder, but any mental disorder we diagnose is well, I guess you could say mental abnormality. A, it's well, yeah. Either way, what whatever yeah. you want to use, it, it doesn't boil down to a specific place in the brain. There is no material cause for that psychological condition. So it that it very well may be the case that there is some spiritual influence there as well. But we're not countering this in because we're materialistic scientists and we don't do yeah. that. Yeah, kind of like yeah. with the uh, idea of miracles. And we discussed this in our episode about this. If you do believe in miracles just because it has a earthly reasoning behind it doesn't change the fact that it was a miracle. Yeah. The, so kind of, kind the of explanation the, of how it, it's, it's kind of like describing two sides of the same coin. It's like behind that material cause was a spiritual cause. Yeah. If that makes sense. And for people at home, that does not mean everything is divinely powered and fatalistic. Please note, there is influence, but that is the word influence, not control. Right. And the nuance between those two is uh, an ever going, ever ongoing debate. And how much we weigh into one or the other is, is uh, Stuff we have to figure out. Yeah. Stuff I'm yeah, still figuring out. Something the especially if you're religious or say I guess you can say spiritually inclined. Mm-hmm. Take both into account because one doesn't necessarily negate the other, as we just stated. Yeah. And also right. it's funny you brought up the nature versus nurture because that ties into what we've talked about on the abortion series. And with why I think parents should be allowed to take developmental psychology courses and things like that. Because a lot of, especially mental disorders, stem from something. In your childhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So let's move on to the next topic. Uh, The next pragmatic question which is how can homosexuality be wrong if it's not harmful to anyone? So there's a few things to get into here, statistics-wise. The idea that homosexual behavior isn't in the least dangerous is an outright lie because the statistics reveal otherwise. One in three gay men who engage in receptive sexual activities uh, have chronic incontinence or failure of the sphincter muscle. Diarrhea, cramps, hemorrhoids, prostate damage, ulcers, and fissures which invite infections are all too common among these individuals. In 2012, 75% of syphilis cases came from men who had sex with other men. Men who engage in gay sex over the course of their lives have an STD rate of 75%. Over the course of a year, 40% of them will have STDs. Rates of colon cancer is higher amongst gay men, and rates of breast cancer is higher among lesbian women. Gay men who are not HIV positive are 20 times more likely to get anal cancer. Gay men who are HIV positive are 40 times more likely to get anal cancer. 69% of new HIV cases are due to male-to-male sexual intercourse. Therefore, a majority of the new cases of HIV come from a minority percentage of the population engaging in male-to-male intercourse. So there's also higher uh, 
usage of drug and substance abuse in the gay community. Tobacco use is two times higher. Lesbian females are seven times more likely to abuse alcohol. Sexually active gay males are 3.5 times more likely to use marijuana, 12.2 times more likely to use amphetamines, and 9.5 times more likely to use heroin. Uh, all right, so I've got kind of a longer one, but children who are raised by homosexual parents report more problems from their family of origin, are more likely to receive welfare, have lower educational retainment, and are more likely to suffer ongoing depression, are more likely to be arrested, and are uh, have more same-sex sexual partners than those raised by biological parents. This is the general trend among the gay community. They have significantly more sexual partners and have higher rates of sexual infidelity in comparison to their heterosexual counterparts. Children of homosexual fathers are three times more likely, and children of homosexual mothers are four times more likely to identify as something other than heterosexual. Sexual abuse is also significantly more prominent among those raised by homosexual parents. Children raised by gay fathers were three times more likely to have been touched sexually by a parent or adult care caregiver, while children raised by le lesbian women were ten times more likely. Children raised by their gay fathers were three times more likely, and by lesbian mothers were four times more likely to have been raped. Overall, children raised by lesbian mothers are 46% more likely, and by gay fathers, 52% more likely to experience sexual abuse in the home. So that was a lot of statistics to absorb. Uh, I'm just going to wrap up this part by saying, essentially, marriage is designed to be between a man and a woman. The intended, it's intended for the establishment of, fam of a family. The purpose of sex isn't purely for pleasure. It's also to procreate, and this is the way that God designed it. Marriage is intended to create a stable environment in order to raise children. Biologically speaking, homosexual partners biologically are physically incapable of procreating and statistically speaking are significantly more likely to sexually abuse adopted children. Therefore, science and statistics back up the Christian view. And that I will I will yield my time and hand it yeah. over to you guys. First with the drug use is um well a lot of the issues come from the problems of, say, take like the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s. A marginalized group of people being basically chastised and the kind of problems that causes. Because a lot of eight people that got AIDS back then wouldn't go to the hospital because they wouldn't get treatment. So they would just be kind of, they were ostracized. Yeah, and when and stuff like that comes, higher chances of mental problems, drug abuse, and having kind of a bunch of, say, broken people, mentally unwell people, who cope in their own ways, doesn't help healthy create healthy coping mechanisms and a healthy kind of mental culture. Yeah, and to tie tie into that, that was also seen for straight people who had contracted the disease during that during the epidemic. 
There's a H- famous case. HIV or what, what disease are we talking HIV. about? HIV. Okay. There's a famous case of a young male, young white male from straight parents, straight Christian parents, who had contracted HIV through a bad blood infusion because it wasn't something they necessarily tested for properly. And the amount of hatred that one child gathered for something outside of his own control during that time created this ethos of hatred amongst people who lived their life differently. They automatically thought either the son was molested or the son was gay or the parents were drug abusers. They automatically jumped to that conclusion, which therefore created the ethos of people not wanting to find out. They would rather die not knowing than be chastised and separated from society. And that taboo in and of itself helped create the, because it's, once you break one rule of society, it's easier to break another. Like with crime. If you have killed someone, it's a lot easier to go out and rob someone because you've already mentally broken that barrier. That's when you look at uh, statistics on reincarnation, not reincarnation, that's a whole different (laughs) reincarceration. You can see that once you break one of society's rules or laws, it becomes, you become more inclined to be able or be willing or desperate enough to break another one. That's Mm -hmm. why it's very common to see a murderer also stealing a car to get away or a drug user stealing to fund their habit because you've already broken the mold of society. So what's one more? What's one more little lie to tell? It's kind of like looking at children growing up. If you teach them to lie, where does the next boundary break? So that's why I do get the statistics side of it. I don't necessarily, depending on when the statistics come from, I think that more so says about our society and the willingness to help and to have open arms more so than it does on someone's sexual orientation. It's like the problem with drug addiction today. It's still taboo, even though it's so prevalent. People don't want to get help either because they don't want it or they're afraid to. They'd rather suffer in silence. And the same can be said with uh, mental illnesses. It's easier and safer to suffer in silence than to be chastised and separated from society. It's easier to not seek forgiveness for one's sins than it is to lay them out on the open table. It's safer. Right. So I don't, I mean, I don't disagree with you essentially because I know uh, it is, I've heard a number of horror stories about how people have been treated by, you know, who, who are gay, who are uh, just kind of abused uh, either verbally or mentally or physically by their religious, zealous Christian parents. Um, so, and I'm not, I'm not really saying that I, I don't, if I were in that situation, if that were my child and my child were gay, like, I don't know how I would handle that. So I don't, I don't know how to, you know, provide a clear cut solution 
for that. But um, I will say that, you know, I, I just want to echo what I talked about last episode. And that's why I set it up in the way that I did is talking about like, OK, you were zeroing in on these things on in this passage. But look at the broader context of what else the passage is also condemning. And if you had the humility to realize that you also are more than likely just as guilty as the person you're criticizing, then it would give you a little bit more grace when it comes to talking to them about these kinds of things. Yeah, and I, I think that is a very powerful point to make to people because it's easy to look at just cold statistics or, you know, facts are one thing, but you still have to show that humility. Right. Looking at just as a numbers game can take the humility out of people because we could, there's so many things we can break down in statistics and try to get an idea, but it still takes the human element out. So I, I do think that is a very strong thing to need to say, especially when it comes up to this, mm -hmm. because it's, there's a societal reason why a lot of these issues occur. And I think one way to, be able to tackle those societal reasons is exactly what you said. Look in the mirror and show grace and open arms to discuss and help. And I hope I'm not mincing your words there, but that's what it's feeling like when you said that and brought up that passage. That's kind of the vein that I got from it is yes, all of these things are sinful. We all 90% I'd say more than 90% of us are guilty of these things at least right. some of them in some degree so yeah sorry to get off on that little tangent there but I do think you bringing that point up from the last episode is very necessary yeah and yeah. I was gonna originally I was gonna answer this in a more philosophical tone a white lie isn't necessarily harmful to anybody is it a lie necessarily isn't harmful to anybody but doesn't mean it's not wrong and i'm talking about the question how can this be wrong if it's not harmful to anyone when you break that down philosophically that is kind of the route i would take when it, just because something isn't harmful doesn't mean it's not wrong in the Christian ethos. Right. Fair enough. I mean, that's, that's also a good, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to detract from that cause that is a good way of answering it. But I think, I guess really all I was trying to get at is we in our society just view, uh, homosexuality as being equal and it, there's nothing wrong and nothing different about it compared to heterosexuality. And, that's not entirely true. And so I wanted to kind of bring that up. And I know it's it's heresy to bring up these kinds of statistics today, but they are important for people to keep in mind on this issue. Yeah. Also, a quick question. Uh -huh. Do you have the dates where that info was drawn from? Because I think that has that says a lot more so than just general general statistics. Right. Or so, will it be linked in the... Uh, Episode notes. Okay, so just as to, to back up and give you guys information on how I 
develop these episodes. There is a series on YouTube that a pastor preached. Um, it's a four-part series. Each one's like over an hour long. So I basically just condensed all the information and put it into these episodes. Um, he's done his research, and I actually reached out to him and asked him if he could send me the sources for it. Um, so he sent me like his outline and his notes. Um, but the link to those um, episodes is going to be in the show notes. And if you guys would like, I can dig through my email and find his his outline for that series and send it to you as well. The series yeah. is not super recent. I think it was done in 2015. So the dates and stuff, obviously, that he's pulling from are going to be before that time period. I don't know exactly when they are off the top of my head, but uh, yeah, that's okay. kind of how I've developed this series. Yeah, because like with the... Uh Besides, like, the um, personal health things, but, like, the social STDs and stuff like that, well, like, men, men are naturally more willing to be risk-prone and being ostracized and stuff like that affects how your risk assessment is. Right. So that can be an explanation, like, with the abuse thing. Um, abuse is caused by abuse. Ahead. So it le it's not necessarily it's like an endemic issue is what you're saying. Yeah, it's not necessarily oh you're gay you're going to abuse someone, but it's like oh these people possibly for their for them being gay were abused in some point during their childhood because I mean there's been really a lot of studies trying to figure out what causes abuse the. Um, possible generational link between abuse, abuse, and some of it goes to shell shock and PTSD during World War II and kind of atrocities of war coming back home and causing issues within the family. Yeah. And uh, one more thing I'd like to point out is when I spoke about like the societal norms breaking those, the same can, can be seen through the rise of extremist religious beliefs once you look into those, especially in the Middle East and even in America to a sense. Once you become ostracized for one thing, it's even easier to fall deeper. Like if me and David came and beat you up over your religious beliefs, it would be easier for you to get even deeper into them. And even for some people that results into cults and things like that, once you break one of society's norms, it's easier to fall away from society because you're ostracized and aren't shown grace if that makes sense yeah yeah i mean that backs so, up that's kind of like a secondary point to what you brought up earlier yeah um but i the only th- i i think it's easier for some people to grasp if you bring up two sides mm-hmm. of a sim- of the same coin because that's something that also can be seen with the rise of extremist politics in america once you break that one norm and start pushing all one way it's easier to keep pushing till you fall off the cliff the only thing I would object to what David mentioned is he's like, well, men are more uh, likely to take risks. And so that could account for some of the HIV. I, I agree. Like, yeah, obviously men are more likely to take risks, but I don't think yeah. it accounts for the specific subtype of men that are gay that are are accounting for most of the HIV cases. I think like if it were just men in general, like you would just see men in general having well, more HIV, if I remember not correctly, just... Men are statistically more likely to get SCs, but 
it also comes into the possibility of a lot of men think, oh, this person get, can't get pregnant. Say, uh, lady has had her tube side, man has had a vasectomy, something like that. So, oh, I don't need to use protection. Yeah, you can Instead also see that. Instead of thinking about the full picture, they think of this of one little thing. And then there's like, also nope. the what say a societal norm or education not being kind of either accepted, given, and stuff like that. Yeah, and so kind of like what a oh, as you're I, saying. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's so hard to read your cues sometimes, <laughs> but uh, you can even see that when it comes into our elderly population and the dramatic rise in STDs and sexual diseases in our retirement homes. Once you take away that risk of a baby, people really, their risk assessment gets all messed up. You think they're mm -hmm. using condoms in a retirement home? Nope. No. But are <laughs> STDs rising dramatically in retirement homes and communities? Yes. That is a statistic that has become even more prevalent since... I want to say 2000 has just been steadily rising since, since we keep putting more of our elderly in these places. Yeah. Um, just the, just one last point on this before we move on to the next question. Really, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to detract from anything you guys have said, cause there's truth in it. But um, the, the main point I wanted to get across is that, uh, Gay sex isn't healthy. <laughs> like, that's just the long and short of it, you know? It's not healthy, and it is dangerous on an individual level. And that's really all I wanted to say, is that it's, it's yeah. just not healthy. Well, sex in itself is a dangerous game. I mean, look at, say, HPV and stuff like that. I'm and not <laughs> Yeah. HPV is the, one of the largest contributors to cancers and young women. Us men, we don't even know we have it sometimes. But that's why, uh, I can't remember the name of the shot. Gardasil. Gardasil, yeah. Get your Gardasil shots. Don't want to get cancer. I know a few people who got it from HPV and didn't even know that was a thing. But that also stems more into education in society. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, heck, shaking hands, you can get sick from shaking someone's hand and touching your face. Any yeah. interaction can have an effect. People are gross. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But there's different factors, cultural and whatnot, that go into that as well. Back to the outline. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next question now. Uh, and that is, can someone change their sexual orientation? So, I'm just going to go ahead and open the floor up to you guys and ask you, what do you think on this issue? Because it is very controversial. All of these questions are controversial, but that's why we're talking about it, because we like to talk about controversial things. This is one I honestly am not a form too much on, because it's, it's hard for me to say. Mm -hmm. Because if someone has a predisposition... Weren't they predisposition for it to start with? It's, and some people will hide those predispositions until it is deemed safe 
So it's, it's, I don't have a clear answer that makes sense. So the agnostic is being agnostic. I've never (laughs) had the experience. I've never had to wonder or worry, so to say. Okay, fair enough. That's like if someone who was a non-believer becomes Christian, when was that seed planted? And I'm stating that more in the uh, American mindset because Mm -hmm. Christianity is the predominant religion where it's a lot easier to see say a quote unquote Christian turning to atheism it's easier to see that that either that seed was never planted or for whatever reason they 100% turned their back but then you gotta ask the question did they believe to start with right yeah so just as a sidebar to that um there's actually, if you're interested, there's a whole podcast devoted to um, asking, interviewing people who used to be like the most fervent atheists, why they were atheists, and then they made a transformation and became Christian um, and changed everything about their lives. It's called the Side B Podcast with, I think her name is Jana Harmon. There's like 50 episodes of interviews with uh, people that she's, you know, interviewed for studies and she's just doing them interviewing she's she's done studies surveys with them and she's basically doing a podcast episode for each of them and they're usually like an hour or so long but it's pretty interesting if you're interested yeah but that that's also why i uh state i was born in a christian ethos but Mm -hmm. i wasn't christian but i've also never been atheist right that's why i have to make those clarifications to a lot of people who I discuss these things with because the spiritual seed was planted without me even knowing and has always been there. So it's that's why this question is very difficult for me to give a binary answer because okay, that's I can't fair. tell what's what's in other people's brains and hearts. Yeah. Okay. What about you, David? Um, I do not really think so because like though as so you're kind of, I see, you don't think it's possible to change yeah because okay. um for an example kind of how i view say different types of attraction it's not one or the other it's somewhere kind of in between i mean i've known people that were bisexual that were more say into women but then something changed in their life and they lean more towards men, still interested in women, but n- so what? And I've also known a few people that are gay and then didn't, weren't necessarily comfortable with that. They didn't drew their background stuff, had issues with it, tried to change it, and the attraction's still there, but then they just had a lot more trauma to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously it, from my perspective, it is certainly rare that I hear about this happening. Uh, but I do think it, it does happen sometimes. Um, I absolutely believe it is possible for someone with same sex attraction to change. They can get married to the opposite sex, have kids and live a happy life. No, it's not easy. 
and it requires a certain level of dedication that is largely lost in most mainstream Christianity today. But I do believe it is possible, and the science bears this out. So, for example, one study followed roughly 10,800 adolescents between the ages of 16 and 22. Of the 16-year-old males who had exclusively same-sex attraction, 61% had opposite-sex attraction by the age of 17. For females, 81% changed their attraction in one year. 75% of males with same-sex attraction at age 17 had opposite-sex attraction at age 22. According to the study, someone with a homosexual orientation is 25 times more likely to change to a heterosexual orientation than those with a heterosexual is to change to a homosexual or bisexual orientation. Approximately 3% of the current population claim to once have homosexual or bisexual attractions. This means there are more people who have changed to become heterosexual than there are homosexuals and bisexuals combined. What is, most, what is possibly most shocking about these findings is that they occurred without therapy or any active attempt to change their sexual orientation. So, one other long-term study done in 2007 by Jones and Yardhouse, which has been hailed as one of the most rigorous studies by peer reviewer, followed 98 people with unwanted same-sex attraction for over six years. 15% of the participants reported substantial reductions in homosexual attraction and subsequent conversions to uh, heterosexual action, attraction and function. The most surprising result, though, was that the subjects classified as truly gay, who had the strongest same-sex attraction and least opposite-sex attraction, were the ones who reported the greatest amount of change. Now, there are study after study finding, reporting these findings, yet they are nowhere near the mainstream media. That is because the science is not politically advantageous to the narrative. The media and the left kind of use the LGBTQ community as a pawn to advance their political agenda, in my perspective. And that is it. That's all I have on that part. What do you guys think? Two things. One, the issue I have with the first study is the age range. Because mm -hmm. there's so many uh, social factors that could come into play. Also, the brain is not fully formed for males until, what, 25? Mm -hmm. And then for the second one, the unwanted sexual attraction, mm -hmm. that would give me more inclination to believe either, one, they were more worried about being attracted than they actually were and creating a uh, echo chamber of sorts for themselves. Mm-hmm. And second, give me, give me a second, my brain just. <laughs> and second, there could be more so people, because if it's unwanted, you're more likely to lie about it. Mm-hmm. Because that's like uh, someone with a drug addiction is more likely to lie about not being addicted to drugs than someone without a drug addiction lying about being addicted to drugs. So I do get where the numbers come from, but there's a lot of variables at play there. Okay. And I would, for the first study, 
I would be more interested in a more developed brain. So say, just I'm just going to throw an age range out there, 30 to 35 or 30 to 40. I think that would give more credence versus a young developing mind with so many different factors socially and mentally at play. Mm-hmm. Because well, I the will social say... ethos you create in high school doesn't necessarily... Because we were all high schoolers. Right. We all believed some stupid shit. We all were kind of put in echo chambers with our social circles. So that that would give more credence to the study if it also focused on a more developed mind alongside. Mm -hmm. Because I do think it's important to get numbers from all the ranges Mm -hmm. to have a... And obviously, you don't have to go fucking study 80-year-old dudes because there's not super, there's not a bunch of them compared well, to To kind of people. like harmonize your point and my point in a sense, um, you know, you, you say like obviously the mind is developing in that age range. Well, that would kind of buy into my perspective that it's more nature or more nurture than it is nature. Because if it if it has more to do with your environment that you're growing up in and you're learning and you're changing, um, then that would imply that depending upon that environment, if if certain variables were changed, then sexual orientation could change. Fair point. But then there's also people who do things to set themselves different or to be trendy, as we oh, know. Oh, yeah, dude. Especially like in... Uh, I won't I won't say when, but in the past, I will say there have definitely been times where I've observed people uh, wanting to join the the gay club because it was cool, because it was contrarian and it was a thing to do to stand out and get attention. And And then the problem with that is people in that age range, especially like attention. Yeah. Yeah, And and then which ones of them found out they were actually gay and which ones were just doing it for the kind of as a trend and then it was a state as a trend and died it, it's like muddies a, this... the water so much and then as i kind of describe with the it's kind of uh not the binary but kind of a little graph where i guess to the left you can say kind of heteronormative and then to the right kind of homonormative everyone's kind of in between you might be one percent off on a different direction but it could say wax and wane also uh to kind of give people uh, when you do that though you when you say that there that sexuality is fluid you open up the potential for change because it's if it's fluid it can change Yeah. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I just thought of that. Yeah. I I forgot. Kind of what I mean is kind of your one set, but say factors can go maybe 5% this way, 5% that way. Right. So I I understand what you're saying. But you're saying there's a spectrum of, of, you know, it's not 100% one or this or that. But when when you include that fluid spectrum, you acknowledge that it can change. And that it's not Yeah, immutable. I was thinking, yeah, on the previous question, I was thinking more of like 
is there will you like lose say attraction of females and go straight get go 100% this way 100% that way that kind of strict binary mm-hmm. because a lot of people st- still see it as a binary right so i will say in the cases that i've heard uh of people changing their sexual orientation the same sex desire doesn't go away they just kind of have to learn how to manage their desires and learn when to act on certain desires as opposed to others and particularly within a christian scenario um through kind of praying and and living um according to their christian traditions values they have slowly seen change and and some of them have gotten married to the opposite sex and and live happy and normal lives but you know obviously some people it's more difficult and i understand uh which this is going to be our next question um what christians expect people to do with same who have same-sex desire um i understand it's it's not a it's not a straightforward thing to kind of acknowledge this it's far more easy to just say this is who i am therefore i'm going to do it one funny parallel that just popped up in my mind as someone with an addictive personality and who has previously had addictive issues the one thing to keep in mind and this is through so many programs and the 12 step is fundamentally based around the christian ethos the 12 step program i've never went through one but one thing is once you're an addict mhm you always have you're always an addict because you still have that mindset. It's just you're maybe more able to fight off the urges. Maybe you're more able to separate yourself from your substance of choice or any substance. And it's and granted well, a lot of that ethos comes from a more uh Protestant area because the twelve step program is natively Protestant. Right. But I think the only it, problem with saying is that once an addict, always an addict is what you tell yourself you believe. And so that can, I, I understand the kind of the scientific perspective of that. Like you have those chemical, you have these pathways neurologically carved out in your brain to dispose you towards this certain addiction. But at the same time, um, if you say once an addict, always an addict, that can kind of enable you. So in, in some level, you have to say, like, I am not that person anymore. And if you start to believe that, then you can, there's this thing called neuroplasticity. You can change the pathways in your brain so that you actually aren't an addict anymore. Obviously, yeah, well, for a long time, you'll be predisposed for that, but you can, you can change the way your brain works. Yeah, but also on the other hand, uh. One of the popular phrases is, I'm an addict, I am not addicted. Okay. And because what you will see for people who have had addictions, and they can go decades without touching anything. But once you lose that mindset of this is still a problem I need to work on, it's easy to get back in that slippery slope. I yeah. myself have done it. One okay. drink turns into 12, turns into a whole bottle. But, and then you dig yourself deeper by forgetting your predispositions and by forgetting your, 
your humility. You start thinking, oh, oh, I can put this down anytime I want. I don't have to. Yeah, I can stop tomorrow. And then you're back to square one. Yeah. Okay. So it was just one of those kind of par- weird parallels that popped up while I was listening. I was like, see where you guys think with it. Yeah, I mean, I can see both kind of angles to Like, there's definitely a benefit to certain, to both perspectives, but... Um, yeah, and the benefit yeah. varies on person to person how they would view, say, like, I'm an addict. It could be seen as nihilistic, or it could be seen as, oh, it's just a problem. I need to make sure, you know, I don't do drugs. It's like, I have depression. doesn't mean right now I'm depressed. It means that's something I have to keep an eye out on. Or like, hey, man, I got a fucked up leg. doesn't mean I can't walk. just means I need a lot of ibuprofen. <laughs> All right. So, well, do we have have we have anything else on this before we move on to the next one? Uh, not really. If you guys don't have anything else to bring up, all right, cool. Okay, so let's move on to the next question, which is, what do Christians expect people with same sex desire to do? And we've kind of beat around the bush and talked about this a little bit, alluded to it. But, um, firstly, Christians expect people with same sex attraction to not act on their impulses, much like they. Uh, expect people with opposite sex attraction to manage their impulses. People who have same sex attraction can have friends of the same sex, but they should not seek relationships with them because that is very likely to lead to crossing the line into same sex relations. So there are two roads for Christians who experience same sex attraction and neither are easy. Uh, Number one is remain celibate. Or number two, seek therapy slash spiritual counseling to change orientation. Um, Emphasis on the spiritual counseling part, because I believe that this is much more a spiritual condition than a psychological one, though environmentally learned conditions can have a uh, significant impact through one's psychological makeup, of course. Um, I know this is not easy to tell someone or to live out. We live in a culture that glorifies sex and relationships, and to tell someone to deny their sexual impulses is radically counterculture. I know if I had to deny my sexual desires, it would be very difficult, but I actually do do that to some extent. It's not easy, but for the time being, I'm not seeking a relationship. I have to deny myself. Just like someone struggling with lust shouldn't act on their desires, so too should a person who struggles with same-sex attraction struggle to not act on their desires. Now, while celibacy is uncommon in our culture, it is praised by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-9. to Quote, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion, end quote. He makes further recommendations in verses 25 to 26, quote, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is, end quote. There are entire Christian traditions that encourage celibacy and monasticism. Catholic priests are celibate. Orthodox monks are celibate. So there is a precedent within Christianity for people who want to be celibate. 
But again, our culture glorifies sex, so by proxy, it treats single people with contempt. Obviously, as a single guy, I object to the way society views singleness. Now, uh, last thing here. In defense of the homosexual person, I understand how difficult it is to maintain uh, to, to for this. I understand how difficult this mountain is to climb. No one, hardly even Christians, are able to deny themselves in this way. Not even most people who claim to be Christians today have this level of dedication to carving out the sin in their lives. And this is where I'm going to come to my controversial claim. These so-called Christians are called to do the same thing but don't. It's not every day that you see someone take their Christian beliefs to their logical conclusions, because that's an uncomfortable and inconvenient thing to do. Denying ourselves of what we most want is incredibly difficult, and I believe most Christians today have failed those with same-sex desire who desperately need to see examples to live by. And that's that. Thoughts? I, I think you brought up a, that end point, which is very uncomfortable for the, especially the nominal Christian, who doesn't put too much thought into the belief. It's very uncomfortable. Because to ask one to do something, you should be willing to do it too. And I, we are in a culture that thrives off of pleasure in general, whether mm -hmm. that's sex, drugs, rock and roll. We thrive off of those things. And to tell one person on one hand not to do this while behind their back with your other hand, you're doing something equal to that is wrong. And that's not saying to not offer guidance if needed, but to be willing to put in work to do exactly what to walk the walk and talk the talk. Right. And I think that's where an issue is drawn for a lot of people is, again, we spoke on this during the largest problem with Christianity in America. It's became even more, at least in certain circles, either political or cultural than it has spiritual. There's that disconnect for some people. They're not willing to put the work in. Or it's fair sake for people too. You know, people just want to keep all the good religious rules and not actually like change themselves and do things. They, they want a safe place to go when they die, yeah. but they don't want to do the work to get there. Right. Which I, I think that is a, when speaking on this issue, that is a good thing to bring up because I can't judge a man for what he does. I can judge. I I try not to judge in general, but we all judge. That's something we right. all do. And if someone asks me not to do this, one thing, like let's say, for me to quit drinking tea, mm -hmm. but yet they're drinking things that are just as bad or still bad for you, but they're telling me to live this healthy life. It's very hypocritical if they're not willing to do put the same work <clears throat> in it as I am. Right. And vice versa. Kind of like what, uh, again, I hate to keep going back to this, but with rehabilitation of addictive things. If 
if we don't look at all addiction as what it is, addiction, and we try to label it as drug addiction, sex addiction, this and that, that makes more people okay with, say, someone who's addicted to sex versus crack. Yeah. So they're not willing to put the same amount of work in to fix this one. Kind of pathologizes the the problem and relativizes it, minimizes it to just, oh, it's this mental thing I have. It's no big deal. I'll just take some drugs and I'll I'll be fine. Yeah. But it's uh, (laughs) it's not the way to solve it. Surprisingly, one person who I have, obviously, I like the content that he's made before, but a Stevo from Jackass, he didn't realize he was a sex addict until he wasn't an alcoholic, a drug mm-hmm. addict. And then he realized that I've put this work in here, yet I'm still struggling. So how am I going to be someone to take guidance from or to help if I don't work on this issue, even though I might have worked on these other two issues? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a very good point to bring up when speaking on this. It's not just what's being asked of this one subset. It's what's being asked of everybody. Right. And one other thing, this is, uh, just because I'm going to throw this in here. Um, I felt kind of growing up in the church that I grew up in as a single person, I did feel ostracized. Because I didn't fit into the club of people who were dating or the people that were married. And in these types of Christian circles, you have your married people who are like basically everyone. And then you have the single people that are kind of these second class citizens of sorts. And when I learned that... more traditional forms of Christianity like Orthodoxy and Catholicism um, have outlets for single people. And, you know, monasticism is a way of life for those people if that's what they're called to for the rest of their lives, which obviously that's a big commitment, you know. But both are equal. Marriage and monasticism are equal playing fields, and they're just not... There's a place there for people that I feel like there wasn't a place f- for people in in those other circles that I was at. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, I'm going to become a monk or anything, but it I think both are important. And also the, the other thing is I talk about like how there's not a lot of modern Christians living the way they ought to be living and setting the example for other people. This is one of the things that I think um, seeing... Uh, having this this cloud of witnesses this idea these people called saints i think that is extremely practical and useful for a christian developing their lives in the spiritual walk because they can see how other people live their lives and how they can have tangible role models in their lives even if there isn't anyone in their local church that's a role model and I think that's a really important thing for people to have. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. To and, and touch it reminds that, when you look at, uh, especially in certain circles of American based Christianity, they try to, they make a very shitty attempt at finding role models and people to 
follow and live by, and then we find out, oh, this guy's actually kind of a piece of shit. Whereas it's a lot harder to become a saint. A lot fucking harder. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there aren't role models out there. It's just you have this verified historical, like, long list of people that you can learn from your entire life, you know, and, and that is, that's just, it's valuable to me. So. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be, obviously it could be because it is the minority of Christianity here is especially orthodoxy. But when we look at Catholicism is, is about as big as Baptists in America. Yeah. Actually, that's why I said orthodoxy to be specific. When we look at a, like the role models for Baptists or any of those circles. They almost put them, there's not that separate place for them to be like there is with uh, saints. Mm -hmm. There's not that place of credence for them, which is still not God. So a a lot of people will start almost worshiping their idol or role model instead of worshiping God. So I do agree that that is one thing that I did like about uh, Orthodoxy and even Catholicism is the saints and the martyrs and the relics. It creates a, another vessel to get inspiration and guidance from. Mm-hmm. David, did you have anything you wanted to say? Uh, I was just going to, well, when you were talking about the church you used to attend, Uh it just reminded me of the uh, good old thing that we've all witnessed. You hitch right out of high school, have a kid, get divorced, get hitched, get a kid, divorce. And kind of it, everyone's kind of pushing people towards relationships that who knows if they're actually compatible. They might have just had a thing for each other back in the day. Mm-hmm. And basically trying to take the express route and wrecking, trying to take a turn. Yeah, that's a whole different rabbit trail. But honestly, the way that uh, I think, at least growing up, there wasn't really much conversation on how to date, who to date, versus it was very much for me trial by fire and learning from my mistakes. And I feel like. You know, I've learned a lot, obviously, from those mistakes, but I think that's something that, uh, generally speaking, I'm not saying every church, but some churches could definitely benefit from kind of teaching people what is important and what isn't important in terms of qualities when you're looking for a partner. And parents, let your kids know what a healthy relationship is, especially, well, if you have one, you pr- you might not. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh... It's also okay to be single, guys. You you don't have to have a partner. It's okay. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. You don't have yeah. to become an incel. <laughs> yeah. You can be a completely healthy, normal person, not having a relationship, because in Christianity, the most important relationship is with you guys. The Lord. The J-Man. Do you praise the Lord? Okay. <laughs> wow. Anyway, uh, okay, so this is we, we happen to get off on diatribes about things that aren't quite related, but are sort of related. So let's, let's bring it back. Let's move on to the next question. Um, 
how did we get here as a society? <clears throat> here being uh, our current cultural climate with regard to this issue. So there is a very rare and expensive book called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s that explains how to change public opinion using tactics of manipulation primarily through the usage of media. And looking back, it almost seems as if it were the LGBTQ manifesto. So I'm just going to kind of summarize what that book posited. Step one was desensitized. Constantly expose people to homosexuality to, point, to the point to where they grow accustomed to it. Quote, we can extract the following principle for our campaign to desensitize straights to gays and gayness, inundate them in a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. End quote. Step two, jamming. Make anyone who is opposed to homoerotic behavior into a bad guy. Quote, to over-exaggerate and vilify every representation of anyone who disagrees with homosexual behavior. It can show them being criticized, hated, and shunned. End quote. And step three, conversion. Not to just accept the behavior, but to approve of it. Quote, we mean conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media. In conversion, the bigot, who holds a very negative, stereotypical picture, is repeatedly exposed to literal picture, pair, label pairs in magazines, and on billboards and TV of gay explicitly labeled as such, who do not only look like, who not only look, who not only do not look like his picture of a homosexual, but are carefully selected to look either like the bigots and his friends or like any of his other stereotypes of all right guys, the kind of people he already likes and admires, end quote. So we all kind of know this is exactly what happened because we watched it throughout our lifetimes. We like to talk about how bad the media is, but we have literally been brainwashed time and time again by media propaganda. Uh, just as a sidebar related to this topic, I highly recommend the Philosophize This podcast episodes on media, which is episodes 148 and 40, 149, that explain how we so often cede our ability to think and to rationalize to other resources like the media. I'll leave them in the show notes for anyone interested. Yeah, and to uh, kind of not necessarily a counterpoint, but one other thing is by not having a, and this is more so for the Christianity that is portrayed in the public sphere, because it's either vastly against or for, there's no, what we see in the media, there's no grace. Like we hear about the Westboro Baptist churches, and then we hear about the modern Roman Catholic Church, and then this and that. There's no realistic middle ground that has that grace because it's okay to... <clears throat> but what's the way I want to word this? It's like, again, 
with uh, other issues. It's okay to want to change those issues and disagree, but it's not okay to do harm into another man or to show hatred. Mm-hmm. Again, it ty- it comes to the, you can hate the sin, but not the sin. Yes, you should show love and compassion to the sinner. And I, I, especially with what we've said about where we grew up, that love was, didn't feel well placed. It felt very uh, backhanded. It's like, mm-hmm. get out of my church, but God loves you. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, uh, you can be anything, just don't be gay or you're dead. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think that, again, that ties into what we've kind of stated about our political beliefs and everything. It's, most most of us are pretty sound-minded humans, pretty decently adjusted to this shitty world. But we're not the ones who are able to converse in the public because we're not either too vigilant, too aggressive. We're not loud enough. Yeah, and that's kind of why I wanted to, like I said, st- setting the stage with the first episode of this series, I wanted to kind of nuance it and so that it's not, you know, the traditional hellfire and brimstone that you usually hear. Like, it, obviously, we stand firm in what we believe, but at the same time, um, there's a little bit of grace and nuance to be made because a lot of the times you do just hear these black and white statements on both sides of the issue, and it's it's not helpful to yeah. Yeah, it reduce just creates- these dis- conversations down to you know, yeah that kind it just of thing. creates uh another reason for the opposing view to hit even harder yeah right. once you break again <clears throat> the metaphor i used earlier once you break that norm it's easier to keep pushing and pushing especially if you're being pushed away and i think again that's a disservice that a lot of modern Christ- christianity has done to populace as a whole is to create this stigma of hate or aggression instead of trying to be humble and understanding and to help because when we've sat down and talked with a lot of these preachers and fathers and pastors and i'm not sure what other terms they would like to use but i'm trying to cover all of them because i want to be respectful because they were all very gracious in bringing us in and discussing with us there was a lot of love for the common man, for the every for everyone mm-hmm. when speaking with them. They yeah. might have some controversial statements or be- earthly beliefs, but when they said, when they brought, you know, like if they said or gave you a blessing or whatever, you felt that love. You felt that, that grace there. And I think mm-hmm. that is extremely missing. Which we've stated before. Um, I uh, this just randomly kind of came to me. I so one of the first times I visited the church that I'm going to now, um, people were talking about uh, Ancient Faith Radio, which kind of is a, a umbrella broadcast network for a bunch of Orthodox podcasts. Um, they mentioned a specific documentary series. It's like a four part series on this specific topic. And I recall um, there was this one uh, gay couple that went to an Orthodox church and spoke with the priest after 
was very adamant about getting at his opinion about homosexuality. And like, that was the first thing he asked. And he was like, do you guys believe that homosexuality is a sin? And the priest was like, okay, hold on a minute. Like, I want to get to know you first. Like, let's talk about, like, he wasn't like pandering or anything, but he was like, I, I care about you as a person. Okay. And that's far more important than this peripheral issue. And so he took the time to get to know him. And then in the end, the guy who was kind of interrogating the priest, he was like, well, you know, you were the first pastor that I've met that has been able to care for me as an individual and hasn't just, you know, blown up at me about this issue. And you've shown me grace. And so I'm willing to listen to you and talk to you about it. And Sometimes that makes all the difference to people. I mean, like, yeah, because unfortunately, if you are gay or you are something different than the norm, especially in our kind of polarized society, unfortunately, you have to be just up front, like, hey, are you this? Do you believe in this? What's we this? We want to label people and, and yeah, slap them because, in boxes and then just yeah, assume because they they're like make all sure, the other people in that box. Yeah, because yeah, they like, want to make sure you're not labeling them and because they already have, I'm probably due to prior experience, uh, kind of stereotype in their mind as well. Right. And yeah, breaking I mean, down and that barrier. I'd say we all three are kind of outside of what our labels would be. Like, David's not your stereotypical atheist. You're not your stereotypical American Christian. And I am not a stereotypical agnostic who's just okay being agnostic. We all three have broken those social bounds and have conversed over it, and we see that what's showing care for one another, that opens the door. Right. And because society's so quick to label, and if we followed, you know, what society said for each of us to label each other as, we'd hate each other. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah. So, uh, before we move on to the next question, I want to take a second here to address this label, uh, homophobe that I will probably be labeled by someone on the internet who hears these two episodes. So first of all, um, most people who use the word homophobe don't actually use it properly. Uh, a phobia is an irrational fear. Homophobia is an irrational fear of gay people. Now I don't know about you guys. Um, but most gay people don't really scare me all that much. So I personally wouldn't classify myself as a homophobe. Uh, but what the term has come to mean colloquially, essentially, is that anyone who disagrees with the current narrative pushed by the LGBTQ activists is this label, which is a much broader definition, which in that case, I more than likely will disagree with the LGBTQ narrative. But not only is this definition linguistically wrong and waters down the actual definition of the word, it is also misleading and dehumanizes people who believe in traditional sexual mores. So it is nothing if not rhetorically useful, uh, a rhetorically useful smear tactic against Christians. Yeah. yeah. Though, I mean, that's I like, think I would look stand... at, oh. like, let, I David, consider... let David go first, just because okay. yeah. I want to let him talk. I think that, Sorry. And the unfortunate kind of misuse is due to, say, like the 
heavy fire and brimstone. We hate gay people. They're going straight to hell. You know, all that stuff mm-hmm. has kind of made it to be, oh, you can't just be nice to a gay person, treat them like a human, respect their decisions, they respect yours, and because, I mean, I've met real homophobes, people that would, if, as they said, if a guy came up to me and told me I'm cute, I would kill them. And it's like, bro, what the fuck? And, but yeah, it's just yeah, but the, the word gets thrown around yeah. way too much because that most people aren't scared of gay people. Yeah. And not the... I mean, there's still people that... Uh, I'm sure they say exist, don't, but yeah. they're not... Uh, they're not yeah. Well, as, it's uh, also depends on kind of your idea of fear because my fear comes from misunderstanding and what people that don't know might not know a gay person, might just <clears throat> not understand, like, oh, okay, yeah, they're just a normal person. So I guess that varies, but yeah, the from the literal definition, it does get tossed around, but also people on the opposite side perpetuate that too. As we've kind of discussed with one doing one thing, and instead of being like, oh yeah, I... And I believe this, but I respect you on that. We can agree to disagree. It's like, oh, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. Fight. Fight. Okay, go ahead, Michael. Uh, I was kind of going to just touch on the same basis as David there, whereas I wouldn't call someone who disagrees with the lifestyle living as long as, you know, they just show some humility and be a decent person it's it's one thing to disagree it's another thing to be a dick Mm -hmm. like me and you disagree on a lot of things you're not a michael phobe you're not being (laughs) hateful you're not going uh if michael's in this room i'm walking out (laughs) (laughs) get out of my church yeah and granted i do believe that some words can have context change, but I don't think that is the proper contextual change that should happen with that word. Whereas if you had said, yeah, someone who just goes out and actively is hateful towards people of a different sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. I would say that shows fear of that sexual orientation. So like the Westboro Baptist churches of the world, things like that. I don't think someone disagreeing shows fear. Because right. I disagree with with a lot of politics, but I'm not fearful of them. Yeah, I'm not fearful of you for your conservative values. You're not fearful of me for my more progressive values. We talk about them. There's no fear there. Yeah. So I would I would agree that that word it's thrown around too loosey goosey. Yeah. But there's a lot of words I believe are thrown around too loosey goosey, like Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and liberal yeah. and Spicy. conservative and conservative and liberal yeah that's a and progressive we spoke about that on pol- yep. politics out it's like we've but, uh, done a podcast about this or something yeah. <laughs> yeah we people weaponize words and try to take them out of a context that they 
deserve to be in and in doing so takes away credence and the power from that word. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a good thing. Most times it's not. Right. Okay. So the next question is, what are the political implications of this view? That's a big rabbit trail, rabbit hole. But uh, I guess I'll go ahead and start us off. So Christians are not telling people with same-sex desire, you can't get married, that's only for us. Instead, what we're saying is that the definition of marriage is a union between a man and a woman. The state has no authority to change what God has defined. So the implications of the Supreme Court ruling are vast. Justice Roberts had some fiery words in the dissent of the Obergefell versus Hodges case. Quote, this court is not a legislature. Whether same-sex marriage is a good idea should be of no concern to us. Under the Constitution, judges have the power to say what is what the law is, not what it should be. The fundamental right to marry does not include the right to make a, ch- a state change its definition of marriage. End quote. So essentially, he he claimed that those who voted in the majority, what they did was illegal because the judicial's branch, the judicial branch's job is to interpret laws, not redefine them. He also stated, quote, the court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states in order and and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. Just who do we think we are? End quote. So this isn't really a human rights debate. This is a debate about the definition of marriage, as Justice Roberts wrote in the dissent, and its implications are far more reaching than just one issue. The effects, whether intended or unintended, marginalize the value of the traditional family, which, by the way, is vital, vitally essential to the thriving of a society. You cannot chip away at the family without also chipping away at the very fabric of society. As I mentioned in our discussion about abortion, children who grow up without a father in the home are four times more likely to end up in poverty, seven times more likely to get pregnant as a teen, teen, two times more likely to drop out of high school, more likely to have behavioral problems, to abuse drugs and alcohol, to commit crime, and to go to prison. I've already mentioned some of the statistics of children who grow up in homes with homosexual parents. By encouraging so-called gay marriage, just from a statistical standpoint, we are increasing the likelihood of all these things, which are objectively bad for the thriving of society. So... I'm going to let you guys respond. I have two other little points I want to make, but I'll let you guys respond to what I've said so far. Well, essentially for me, the reason why I believe that in the legal sense, because you can get married in a courthouse, that has that in and of itself has nothing to do with religion. That's a courthouse. That's not a church. By creating that social union outside of the church that means that it leads to a slippery slope if you start excluding on social unions so next they could be whomever can't get married because they are not socially deemed worthy of the Christian ethos of marriage legally I'm I'm for whomever getting married to whomever as long as they can legally consent and I think marriage should be 18 plus at the minimum but 
I am not going to say that it is my place to call what can happen within a religion because that is not my ethos. I am not within one. I can just say what legally, with the legal implications of marriage currently in America, what I believe is the right thing because then the same could be said in a different sense about atheists getting married. Hindis getting married. Because once you marginalize a social construct legally, then you are making subhuman. If that makes sense, I can explain if you want no, me to. No, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, David, yeah. did you have anything? or? Uh, I mean, kind of, I'd say pretty much the same thing because it is through <clears throat> the court, the government, and especially since we put, say, taxes and other things such as um, if uh, one person is in the hospital, the person they're in a relationship with, unless they're married, might not be able to go see them even after dying in certain cases or if they're really sick or stuff like that. So the ability to have a partner and then reap the benefits to that in a legal sense and through ta tax breaks and stuff like that. And for the religious aspect, I mean, that's up to the church and everyone in that church. That's why we can have, uh, that's why like Mormons can have, well, certain sects of Mormonism will have marriages with a bunch of people in them. It's not necessarily by to the law. It might be illegal, but it still happens in the church. It's kind of that separation from church and state taking place. And as Michael said, uh, in the legal, well, in the government terms, once you set a precedent that this one category can't get legally married, get the representation of their partner and stuff, Who's to say the next little minority, this and that, and whittles away? Yeah, I will. I will echo that. Um, just these last two points are kind of related to what you guys were saying already. But the ruling, in a sense, kind of sets a precedent to marginalize religious freedom. It's this tug of war between the state and the church in this case. If religious people defend traditional marriage and refuse to marry a gay couple, they can be challenged in a court. And also, to both of you guys' point, given the new definition of marriage, why arbitrarily draw the line at same-sex marriage? Based on the logical principles used to justify same-sex marriage, why not allow polygamy or pedophilia or incest or bestiality? Well, that's why we draw the line at consent. Because a relationship is, well, at least in our society, a relationship is something that takes two people or and poly relationships. Yeah, you can have... Of, yeah, two people... It doesn't necessarily exclude, polyg exclude polygamy. Or incest. Yeah. Uh, there are laws in place for that. But that's what I'm saying, is by the precedent set by allowing same-sex marriage, it's because 
what what the reasons have been defined, well, we don't want to exclude this group of people. Okay, well, what about these other groups of people? Why arbitrarily draw it at same-sex marriage? See, I mean, I know the answer, the answer yeah, to that question yeah, is because yeah. it was culturally relevant. Yeah, but, the, but uh, then why not draw it at white Christian couples? Because that's not what marriage is defined as. To in the eyes of the sex. government. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's some people believe slope slope it great is. is you can keep marginalizing and marginalizing. It's like uh, take one gun away. Eventually you can take them all away. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the funny thing. You brought up the incest thing. Mm-hmm. Because in early America, that was very common. <laughs> and in, yeah. in some but, places today, it's even being promoted as um, minor attracted persons. They're trying nah, to normalize that. So there's that minor it's it's again, it's one thing to be attracted and to present that attract attraction and try to get help. It's another no, they're, to they're act- trying to normalize like incest in some places. So, I well, mean, uh, no, pedophilia. Uh, yeah, yeah map is, is that and that lacks a the consent aspect. And there's a and I mean, technically, there's child marriage laws still and in some sects of. Even Christianity, there's child marriage still going on. Yeah. We we don't like those people. <laughs> yeah. But uh it's funny you brought up the incest because that is a historical thing that only in uh modern times we've really been able to draw that line of like, no, you shouldn't marry your first cousin. You know, that's how your kids have come out all fucked up. Mm-hmm. But in uh early America it was very common to legally and in the church marry your cousin. Even though it Well, the Bible also prohibits incest, so Yeah. It, I don't even know. I mean, they 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 would be in the wrong in that case. So like to you guys' yeah. point uh, of questioning like, well, why not restrict marriage to the in the other direction? Well, I mean really it's because that's not how marriage is defined. Yeah. Marriage is defined between a man and a woman, and obviously uh not in an incestuous yeah. sense and not in a pedophilic sense and not in a polygamous or bestiality so uh, or homosexual that that's that's what marriage is defined as and so that's why it shouldn't and can't be uh restricted in the other direction now question okay if say the legal aspect and the spiritual aspect were separated and use something different than the name marriage. And this is gonna this is kind of a thought experiment. Let's say back when the US was formed, you could you could only get married in the church, but you could have a social contract with your partner to reap the the uh economical and social benefits of the partnership. So you're saying in the church you're married, but in the state you're just your partner con- contracted you're to yeah, each other. Basically, okay. that's it's a okay. marriage contract in the government, which is mm. kind of kind of funny to think about. You can just go sign papers, and you're tied for quote unquote life. Which again, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to dig into. Uh, would that make it easier to go? Okay, this is the separation. This one is legal. This one is spiritual. So I I see where you're coming from there. And 
because that that would in one sense that would ease the tension a little bit because it's not redefining marriage which is a religious idea okay so it's not the state getting involved in religion is is kind of how i view it as of now however that wouldn't necessarily help the societal issues that have come of minimizing the traditional family and permitting sexual promiscuity that from a from a broader moral perspective you know i would say that christians should still be against that uh in a legal sense even because they they want the good of a society and the good of mankind and in general it's it's not healthy or safe or good and so that so i mean like in a sense like it it kind of just pushes the issue in a different direction and yeah, but, but then also, who's uh, to say not having 14 <clears throat> kids work the farmland isn't a degre- degradation of the traditional family? Or... Uh, I'll say, say it one more time. Uh, because uh, talk of traditional family, if we go back into, say, when the U.S. was, bo- was made, the traditional family was a large-sized family working the field. You had kids to work the field. Oh, our kids mm-hmm. are going to school and not working the field. They're being lazy. Mm-hmm. So, so in some so points, that could you... be seen as a degradation of the traditional family. Because, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I mean, to be, should... to be fair, okay, to be fair, like marriage has been in the dire straits for a long time because yeah. of... Uh, no fault divorce so we have their marriages this was kind of like the final nail in the coffin of the of the cultural issue of marriage being uh not in a great situation so anyway that was just a a side note what were you gonna say michael Uh, oh i was gonna just state on essentially kind of what you just said people don't take marriage seriously anymore the divorce rate is what fifty percent? Yeah, I think it's like, like either forty nine or fifty one or something like that. And a lot of that issue to Last me is again in the young when we were younger, the types of churches that we went to. I've known so many of those fuckers that get married and then two years later at twenty be like divorce. I don't, I don't love you. It's like that's not what you made a contract with God with. Yeah, and that, love this. this kind of harkens back to our episode on abortion, talking about uh, education. I think we should educate people, particularly uh, people who are in a religious context who are intending on getting married for religious reasons. Uh, they need to be aware of like what the things are that matter, the qualities. And this is this has to do with how you raise your child as well. But teach people what is important and what is not important, because when you don't do that uh obviously that's going to lead to problems like divorce and there's kind of these cultural lies that we're fed about marriage that we just you know people don't realize are lies until they get married yeah also uh marriage isn't and this is really prominent in uh certain protestant circles in the south marriage is not a ticket to sinless sex okay God knows what you're doing. <laughs> he knows your lust is driving you to marriage. That ending of itself is a problem. But 
Yeah. Just quick little thought experiment. If okay. you had to put an age on when you could become married. Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> um, now, I, I have an idea, but I'll let you speak on, on it first. Because <clears throat> I think it's an important thing to kind of get where we're all coming from with marriage. Are you asking like just uh, as like a personal preference or like a legal precedent? Uh, since I kind of already know what you look at marriage as and the ties and the severity of it, I'm going to say more of a legal side or even uh, something that a spiritual advisor, father, preacher would be able to discern and be like, hey, maybe you should wait a little bit. Because I, that's I think it's an issue with more modernity, and how we view marriage as a society, and we don't allow our children to develop into adults before they get married. Yeah, so there's pros and cons to both sides. There's obviously developmental cons to getting married early on, um, and again, the things that we care about when we're teenagers aren't the things that we care about when we're, you know in our mid-20s, but there's also the problem of, you know, waiting too long to get married, and then all of a sudden there's nobody out there, and then you're really picky and jaded, Uh, and so I personally wouldn't feel comfortable putting a a number legally down, because I don't know, and I don't really... I don't really think that's really the place of the state to say when is the minimum age you're allowed to get married at. I mean, there can be recommendations through spiritual counsel, but I don't, I don't think that should be set in a legal sense. I, I, I get what you're saying, but just so this doesn't get skewed, you're not for two 12-year-olds getting no, married. No, obviously not. No, I'm not saying that, like... So there, there is a number, there but is, you don't want to legally set the precedent with the number. Right. I mean, I don't think child marriage is a good idea, you know, but it kind of is, because I, I can see a scenario. I mean, let's say people grow up and go to high school together and they're dating throughout all of high school and, you know, they've, they are serious about it and they were raised to kind of uh, intentionally date and know what to look for and what not to look for. I mean, I could totally see them being ready for marriage by the time they graduate. And that's, you know, that's still fairly young, but I can also see people uh, in the opposite perspective saying you need to date for like 10 years before you get married. And I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) I mean, I, I personally, if I had to put like a minimum dating time, <clears throat> at, at least a year, you shouldn't go two months later and go get married. I don't think that you know that person enough. Yeah, I, I would I generally agree. Yeah, I would generally agree on with that. Yeah, but, but no, again, think- when we're talking about these kinds of things, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make it like a legal discussion. Like I would make it like a kind of a our opinion on these kinds of things because I, I don't really think like we should 
make it illegal for people to get married if they haven't dated for over a year or something like that, you know? I don't think that yeah. belongs in the realm of legal. Yeah, yeah. and I, I also don't... I, I don't think people under the age of, like, 21 should have their heart set on... Because this is something I've seen a lot, and a couple people we went to school with went to mm-hmm. college just to go get married. They didn't give a fuck about their degree. They were like, I want to get me an MRS. That's a missus. <laughs> and I think that is a very unhealthy way of going about it. So I I think we all agree that we really need to change the uh, way that society as a whole tackles relate important relationships. Because my opinion, that is one of the very important relationships you will have, you should carry with you for the rest of your life and you should be sure that is what you want to do when you make that legal and spiritual decision. Mm-hmm. Don't get married just so you can finally have sex. Don't get married just because you're about to go be shipped off to God knows where for the military. And don't get married just because you, you made a baby. All right, raise that baby. Once, one mistake doesn't mean you have to make a hundred more mistakes. Because then I see if you divorce that person in two years and you only got married because you had a baby and there was no love there. That is a disservice in and of itself. Hmm. Controversial yeah. I, things. I, I like to say, uh, <laughs> because I, I think at least should be, I think it should be a longer overall. And I like to joke, you should be getting towards, because you know, I see like first year, it's kind of like the honeymoon phase. Everything's all nice and rosy. And then you get to like the middle-aged people phase and then the whole fart phase where y'all will bigger and have, have a little fun. But if when push comes to shove, if y'all need each other, y'all are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and think, just I think does... it should get to that end. The kind of be like, yeah, this is what we are. We are a unit. Yeah, like so that. I think I think, and this is obviously again my personal opinion, not a, a legal precedent, but um, I think kind of there are certain check boxes. That's probably not the best way of putting it, but things you want to make sure that you and your partner are compatible with. Uh, so things like your religious views and your political views, like make sure there are no major issues there because that's like the, that's going to cause problems in the long run. Um, things like, you know, personal preference in food and music, like those aren't really the biggest deal. And that is the though. <laughs> um, so really, I think the, there are obviously intentional questions that you should ask when going through that discernment process. But I think what really what it boils down to from my perspective is how do you handle conflict? Because if you can handle conflict and you can get through problems together, that's going to be a hell of a lot easier when you're married than if you can't solve, if you can't admit when you're wrong, that goes for both people. If you can't admit when you're wrong and apologize and change, then odds are you're probably not good for each other. Yeah. So have some humility. Yeah. So, I mean, those, those are parts of it because at the end of the day, there are going, when you're married, there are going to be days when you're not feeling rosy and, and, you know, 
head over heels in love like you did that one time when you were dating, you know? So that's the, the I'm trying to think of this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm forgetting like a, a phrase that I heard, I think by N.T. Wright. But anyway, essentially the idea is love isn't a feeling, love is an action. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really what it boils down to. So I mean, that, to, that can to, go really towards any type of relationship, too. Not just a romantic sur- one. Yeah. If you can't survive a few waves, how are you going to survive a hurricane? Yeah. And so and that's, that's re- really... I mean, obviously, there's other things that you need to, you know, work out. But I think that's, mm-hmm. like, one of the... Some of the main things you need to focus on. But anyway, we we uh, got off on we a tangent. We I think, s- yeah, an important tangent. Though I think it's important for us to say some of these things and to say we need to bring the severity back of marriage. Like, you shouldn't be getting married every couple years. That's a fucking problem. Yeah, especially from a Christian perspective. Uh, yeah. You know, there are only yeah. a few instances in which divorce is uh, permitted, even. Yeah. So and you e- should really take it you, seriously because of that. Even if you keep lining up with the permittable ones, you got to look at yourself and go, huh, why are all these people shitty? <laughs> why am I picking these people? Yeah. So. Okay, so let's move on to our last question, and I think it is a very important one. How can we speak with one another in a healthy manner? So. For Christians, I think it's important to make a few distinctions between the various types, if you will, of gay people. Um, so there are some people who simply want to live their lives as normal and happen to identify as gay. I believe in showing the utmost tolerance and respect towards these types of individuals because they don't have any ill will towards anyone. However, I cannot falter on my convictions that homosexual relations are sinful and unhealthy. So if you care about these people and are able to have difficult conversations with them, I highly recommend doing so. Just be respectful, mindful, and try not to be pushy. Now, there is another type in this community, and these are the LGBTQ activist types. You'll often find them attending gay pride events, complaining on Twitter, and dyeing their hair a new color every month. So their entire meaning in life, a lot of times, is derived from LGBTQ activism, and I'll be honest with you, they probably aren't going to listen to anything you have to say. These are the types of people that I personally have significantly less patience with and I'm actively less tolerant of. These people practically promote and worship sexual immorality, and they want to shove it down your throat whether you want it or not. They're largely responsible for woke culture, pressuring businesses to act as if they were politicians, pushing the, uh, their agenda in Hollywood through film and music, and overall destroying culture. These are the people that want to push to outlaw conversion therapy for people who themselves want to change their sexual orientation. Not even kids are safe because these sexual predators... Essentially, now they now kids shows, books, and in some places even schools have been vessels for the radical LGBTQ agenda. So I do not respect these people in the slightest, and therefore I don't engage them. Now, all things considered, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but 
homosexuality isn't particularly a core aspect of Christianity. When I think of the core tenets of Christianity, I think of the divinity of Jesus, the resurrection, the trinity, the reliability and inspiration of the Bible, these kinds of things. Not some morally obscure but culturally relevant topic like homosexuality. All that to say is keep the main thing the main thing. Don't reject Christianity because you don't like what it teaches about homosexuality. In all honesty, it's practically a non-sequitur to whether or not Christianity is actually true. But truth isn't necessarily convenient. And that's all I had on the issue. Uh, for me, just stay humble. Be willing. Again, that, that verse keeps popping up in here because it is in the following verses. So very important. Be humble, be gracious, be willing to do some introspection alongside and both grow as yourself. And if you are Christian and wanting to help another person grow, be willing to put the same amount of dedication in that you want to see out of them. And when you converse, whether it's differing opinions or similar opinions, and this this one's just in general. Things may get a little heated. Stay cool. Stay calm. Be rational. And don't be a dick. Because we literally have pointed out the groups that have done the opposite of that and kind of made fun of them. And they kind of bastardize the teachings and the way you can continue forward. Yeah, we do also have intend to do an episode on, uh, it'll be a little bit, but we intend to do an episode on how to have conversations with people you disagree with, just in general. Just yeah. things that we've learned throughout doing this podcast, and that might be helpful for people. And also, be willing to, just like I'm willing to, think in the Christian mindset, even though I'm not a Christian, and then play devil's advocate for the atheist mindset, be willing to do those little thought experiments so you truly know where you lay in those things. Because it's one thing to just blindly believe, it's another thing to research and figure out what you actually believe. What are, what is important to you in that? Just like Speaking with Bailey, speaking with David, speaking with me. We all have an understanding of where each other lays and we're willing, we're able to sit there and try to think outside of our little box to get an understanding of ourselves, others, and the world around us. David? I mean, David went to how many Christian services? <laughs> <laughs> David, and some others David what are your uh, thoughts on this last question uh, I mean <coughs> don't be a dick uh, and also think of it this way if your key reaction is to go <laughs> to one side you're just creating a bigger issue for both yourself and society because someone's going to go towards the opposition. If you can kind of meet in the middle and converse, talk, 
and have these conversations, you take the, say, the possibility of radicalization and essentially nullify, I'd say, like 95% of it. And because, I mean, most people just want to live their lives, want to be good, positive members of society. We just happen to differ on stuff. And instead of having you get radicalized and then your, say, your brother go to the opposite side and then y'all end up killing each other because y'all are just focusing on one aspect and one minor idea. Just be nice because uh, one thing's not worth, one small little thing's not worth dying over. I don't think this is the hill people should die on. I mean, I think yeah. there are hills worth dying on, but this isn't the one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, essentially, think if in some way, if there was a war about this stuff, would it be stupid? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And if you think, no, 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 this is what we need to fight wars on. I think you're just a little war hungry. <laughs> I mean, like not an actual war, but we are fighting, you know, culture wars. That that all of these uh, political issues yeah. are very but hot you culture war I mean. topics. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you got. Blood, bloodshed. The culture war is also problem with business and all of that, and then so buying a product, buying an idea, and the algorithm. Yeah, that too. All right. Well, but we I, have, we, we've touched on those things. Yeah. Do we have any other final thoughts before we wrap it up? Uh. No. Other than that, uh, that one. Let me find. Do do do. First Corinthians six nine. It's gonna be stuck in my head for a while. Mm-hmm. Keep reading to verse ten also when you when oh, you yeah. look at it because that's the that's important yeah, as well. That, yeah, and I think that's that's something a lot of people should read and take to heart think that that's one of the largest things outside of all this. Don't point a finger if you don't want one pointed at you. If you're not willing to point the finger at yourself. Yeah. Because all three of us can tell you everything. Well, not necessarily everything, but we, I feel like all three of us can say when we fall short of shit. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things to take out of this. Yeah. Show so some grace and humility. Yeah. Animals. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully uh, this was a helpful discussion for people. You know, again, the first episode was kind of designed to clarify what um, the Christian teaching is on the issue. Uh, and and it's also difficult to say the quote unquote Christian interpretation when there's a lot of different uh, denominations that have kind of created their own version but uh, traditionally speaking, historically speaking, this has not really been a thing that has been questioned or, or challenged for the majority of Christian history. So anyway, um, that was hopefully what the intent of that episode was. And this one was obviously a more open dialogue on the questions that extend from from the the response uh, laid out by Christians on the issue. So yeah, um, I think that's about it. Give us um, 
if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, again, we're going to be doing a Q&A episode here fairly soon. Send us your questions at uh, to facingthegatespod at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at facingthegates. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. It's been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun. And, and we'll uh, see you guys next week. We'll see you guys next week.